Are you ready for the word this morning? As your pastor and your teacher and your leader, I don't want to stand in the pulpit on Sunday mornings and pretend like nothing's happened in this world. I don't want to pretend like everything's normal because in all honesty, it's anything but that. We are facing some of the most tumultuous threats that we have ever faced. But in the same breath, I can assure you that the Father's heart is still whispering, peace be still, just like we sang. The Father's heart is to build a family, not rip it apart. God is into multiplication, not division. So you can see by even that simple measurement what's from the Lord and what's not of the Lord. Darkness has crept in and its purpose is to kill the cries of the unborn. Its purpose is to steal the voice of the church. Its purpose is to destroy the will of the citizens. Its purpose, quite frankly, is to steal, kill, and destroy. Those words come out of John 10, 10, but Jesus said, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. See, if we're not careful, we can have all of our attention drawn to the things that the thief is up to. It's easy to do. All we have to do is turn on the television. But our default, our wellspring should always be about what is Christ doing? What is Jesus doing? Where is he at? Where is his heart in the midst of this? With those thoughts in mind, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling, I am not silenced by the darkness. The flag that is planted in the soil of America's heart has been flying at half-mast over the past week or so. As together, as a nation, together as a people, we have mourned the unnecessary and useless and senseless losses of life. And to watch all the destruction that has taken place in our nation. The truth be told, our country is searching for an answer, a vaccine, if you will, that eliminates both physical disease and emotional duress. I wish you well with something like that because there is no such thing. You see, apart from God, we will wear the wounds that never heal. Apart from God, our dreams are crippled. Our country is searching for a way out of this sudden chaos, a way out of this organized darkness that is on an assignment to literally eclipse the hope of many people. How does it do that? By tarnishing the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Over the past week, I want to be honest with you, I have had my absolute fill of television and internet images of violence. I told Valerie on the way to church this morning, I can't take anymore. My heart just does not want to see that anymore. I'm talking about the careless acts of lawlessness and hostility. 
I'm talking about the violence that has desecrated our cities, the violence that has disfigured our monuments, disgraced our worldview, and has disrupted the peace of our great homeland. All of this on the heels of a two and a half month quarantine. My soul is extremely troubled by what I see and what I hear. Yet in my spirit, I have discovered this entrenched sense of quietness and trust. While battles are raging in our streets, the battle cry of grace and peace is colonizing in my heart. While the battle lines are drawn in our congressional offices, the battle cry for love and light is proliferating. It is colonizing in my heart. Do you know what a battle cry is? A battle cry can be something as simple as one word, like charge. That's a battle cry. Or it can be more of a legendary phrase like, remember the Alamo. That's a battle cry too. How about give me liberty or give me death? These are battle cries. Nevertheless, a battle cry is an audible cry from people, in particular soldiers that are rushing into battle. It's a cry that expresses solidarity, a cry that intimidates the enemy. That kind of cry is colonizing. That kind of cry is at work in my heart. Something that brings peace, something that brings solidarity, something that intimidates the enemy and sends him running. That is what is working in my heart. Jesus had a battle cry also. Would you like for me to remind you what his battle cry was? I'll tell you what it was. It is finished. That is a battle cry. And friends, I want to tell you something. That was, that is, and that will forever be the greatest battle cry that history has ever known. Friends, the crisis that we are facing in this country, I want you to hear me very carefully on this, is not a race problem. It's a grace problem. Racism is only the fruit of the problem, not the root to the problem. And if we keep treating symptoms rather than treating the cause, we will never be free. I want you to meditate on what I just said. As I've said before, too often we spend so much time mowing dandelions rather than taking care of the root problem. We have to treat the cause. Racism is just a manifestation of an inner root system that is wicked. Did you know that a man that has a deficiency in vitamin C will end up with scurvy? I learned that in grade school. I've never forgotten that. You give a man enough of a deficiency in vitamin C, he'll end up with scurvy. You know what scurvy will do to you? It will give you wounds that can't heal. You show me a man with a grave deficiency in vitamin D, I'll show you a man with rickets. You know what rickets do to you? It's a disease that stunts growth and cripples a man's walk. And a man that has a deficiency in grace will end up in darkness. He'll end up in chaos 
racism and every other worldly passion stems from a grace deficiency. I want you to see these words in the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, some of my favorite verses. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Look what it says. It teaches us to say no. What teaches us to say no? Grace. The grace of God appears to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to worldly passions, and it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love these words, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Friends, let me tell you something. There is no grace apart from Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because the Bible says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It manifested through Christ. There's no grace except through Christ. Grace is the personification of Christ. According to those scriptures I just read there in Titus, we can see the x-rays from the people that have a grace deficiency. How does it show up? Ungodliness, worldly passions, out-of-control lives, immorality, and wickedness. The Bible says a good tree does not bear bad fruit. The bad tree does not bear good fruit. You say, Pastor Mark, are you trying to tell me that there's no racism in the world? Oh, not at all. I'm telling you, there is racism in the world. It's a real problem. But racism is only the symptom, like I said, and not the root cause. No baby was ever born a racist. Babies only have two fears when they're born. The fear of loud noises because they've been used to a bag of waters where they can't hardly hear a thing inside there. Have you ever went swimming one time? Once you get underwater, they can shoot firecrackers off and everything else. You can't hear a thing. We used to do that when we were kids. We'd go swimming and say, I'm going to jump in the pool. I'm going to dive down deep. And you start yelling at me and you couldn't hear a thing. Babies can't hardly hear a thing. They feel vibrations. So they're born with this innate fear of loud noises. They jump when they hear a loud noise after they come out of the womb. And the only other fear they have is falling, the fear of falling. If you take a baby and hold them up like that, make any sharp move, that baby's hands will come out like this. They're afraid of those two things. Everything else is acquired. Everything else is learned. Everything else is inbred. Everything else is taught. There's no baby that's born a racist. No baby was ever born that way. In every single case, racism was sown into his or her growing and developing heart. That's how it happened. If our response is to always address every problem through behavior modification, then we will never be free. That is a mouthful. That's a heartful. That's an earful. Let me say it again. If our only response is to take and treat every single situation that we don't like through behavior modification, you will never be free. Behavior can never change the heart. The heart changes behavior. I don't care how long you practice something, you might get in a routine of doing something, you might get in the habit of doing something, but behavior will never change the heart. It's the heart that changes behavior. The Old Covenant is a close sign on the front door of a business. 
The old covenant is a no shoplifting sign on the wall of a business. But the old covenant cannot change the heart. And that's why we get a new heart when we come to Christ. That's why we get this new covenant of grace when we come to Christ. So that our sins can be forgiven. And so that the sins of those that have wronged us can be remembered no more. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of sins. And if we're going to walk in love and be the loving heart and the loving expression of the Father, then love keeps no record of wrongs. Our ancestors may have done wrong, but in Christ, all is forgiven. I have learned that lesson so many years ago when I've had to have my own personal journey about forgiveness. And the Lord would take me on journeys to forgive certain people that had done my family wrong. And he would give me unique plans in each situation. And I've preached about those before. They're very dear to my heart. In the process of that, watched him bring freedom not only to my heart but to their hearts as well because they were under condemnation because they remembered what they had done and when you release them that's what's supposed to happen we're supposed to walk away everybody's supposed to walk away not feeling condemned anymore you know the bible says i will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more i want you to think about what god said he said look i know you had sins but remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. I know you've got lawless deeds, but remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. I am going to remember your sins no more. Laws do not change heart. Love changes hearts. The Father's love. There's no question in my mind that the stores that were looted by rioters had closed signs hanging right on their front doors. But did the law stop anybody? No. It didn't stop anybody. There is no question that those same stores had no shoplifting signs hanging on their walls. But did that stop the worldly passions of an angry mob from ravaging their shelves? No. Friends, that's because it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is like a rehearsal for where we're going. The problems we are facing in our generation stem from the fact that most people have neither heard nor understood the magnitude of that all-encompassing freedom that comes when we embrace Jesus' battle cry of it is finished. I'm telling you, when you put your arms around that truth, you will find your fight is over. Your fight to perform is over. Your fight to make yourself right is over because you are embracing something that continues to emanate. It's finished. It's finished. It's finished. It's beautiful. Would you like to know what the twin culprits to all bondage, including racism, are? I want you to listen to me carefully. This is an unusual message for me, but this is what the Holy Spirit put on my heart. The twin culprits to all bondage, including racism, I believe are fatherless and godless homes. Fatherless and godless homes. The Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. He calls him the son he loves. These will be the last words the Apostle Paul will write before he is beheaded. 
What is that letter going to sound like? What content would be in that letter? He's writing to Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And he says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He said, Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What a wonderful letter to read. He's saying, Timothy, that Bible right there will show you what's right. That's the doctrine. It'll show you what's not right. That's the reproof. It'll show you how to make it right. That's the correction. And it will show you how to keep it right. That's the righteousness of God in Christ. That you rely on the righteousness of God in Christ. What was the Apostle Paul saying? What is he saying here? He's telling us about the treasure, the fruit, if you will, the necessity for the Scriptures and for faith in Christ Jesus to be planted into the heart of a child. Friends, the people that are running our streets right now acting crazy did not have the Word of God planted in their heart as a child. They did not have the grace of God planted into their heart as a child. Because grace will not allow you to do that kind of stuff. Grace will teach you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and wickedness. And it will teach you to live an upright and godly life. I know we have our shining moments. I get it. But it won't let you get away with that. You know that with a new creation heart, your heart says, no, I want to do what's right. And I don't know where Timothy's daddy's at because the scriptures don't tell us. Maybe he's at home. They just don't mention him. Maybe he died shortly after he was birthed. I don't know. But one thing I do know, his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, it took two of them because there was no daddy apparently. It took them both. But you know what they were doing? They were putting the scriptures in Timothy's heart as a young boy. And Timothy was growing in this knowledge of God that he was a good God. Without the Holy Scriptures in the home and without Jesus Christ in the heart, we forfeit our battle cry for righteousness. We end up with wounds that won't heal in a crippled walk. Now, in all fairness, I have to be honest with you because I'm not totally blind. There are people that will tell you they do not have a relationship with God. They'll tell you, I grew up in a home with no father. They'll tell you, we didn't have uh, any scriptures read in my home. Yet they somehow have seemed to overcome the hardships that most people would face based upon that arrangement. I'm kind of a living proof of that. But one thing we did have is the scriptures. But I tell you what, if you take away the fathers and the scriptures, you take away the father and God, you've got godlessness. See, my daddy may not have been there, but my mother had the scriptures out. My mother took us to church. And so I understood the scriptures in a sense. And some people seem to overcome those obstacles. But the sad and hurtful truth, it's not in the data overall. Overall, they would be considered the very minority 
of anybody that grew up in a home with no father and no God. They are the minority and live functional lives. Without fathers and without Christ in the home, boys and girls are silenced by the darkness. Did you know that the name Timothy means dear to God? <laughs> That's what his name means, Brother Gary. His name means dear to God. From a child, they were saying, this is your identity. And every time they would say Timothy, they were saying, you're dear to God. Every child in America, every child in this world ought to come up with an identity that you are dear to God. If they would begin to hear that at a young age, you are dear, you are precious to the Father. You change this whole world. They need to know that from birth, that they are dear to God. Our homes desperately need fathers and scriptures in them so that from a child, our children can place their faith in Jesus Christ. Fathers and scriptures, isn't that beautiful? Working together so that they can light their children's way out of darkness. The scriptures are vital to life, but when the church mixes Old Covenant with New Covenant, it sends parishioners to a slave plantation. A plantation that people want to run away from. Now see, a lot of people don't understand that they think it's all one Bible, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. No, friends, I'm telling you, the Old Covenant was made obsolete. There's no part of the new creation that is under the Old Covenant, not one single thing. And when you mix the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, you know what you do? You get kids as they grow up and turn 18, walking away from the church saying, I tried that one time, it wasn't for me. You didn't hear about the grace of God then, because you cannot walk away from this grace. You cannot walk away from this love. Yes, you can walk away from the slave plantation. Yes, you can walk away from work. You'll run away from that. And millions of our children have done that. They've run away from this. The ones that did come up in legalistic churches. I'm so passionate about this because, friends, I'm still in the workforce. I still engage people wherever I go. I listen to their hearts. And I hear what's coming out of them. Remember, it's like taking an x-ray. You can see what's in their heart in a sense. They run away from these places, a place where you have to work hard for your approval. I don't want a place like that, that I've got to go show that I'm approved because I work hard in your kingdom, Father. No, you're approved because of my son's blood on the cross. You're approved because of his grace. And that's what we want to be approved and we want to be accepted. The plantation is a place where God is seen as a taskmaster rather than the way he should have been seen, which is a loving father. That's who he is. Friends, I've been standing in the pulpit for several years with a message about how emotional chaos ensues when you mix Old Covenant with New Covenant. And we are seeing a striking example of this play out across our land as peaceful protesters are mixing with violent criminals. You know what happens? The violent incite the peaceful to join them in absolute mayhem and wickedness. The Bible tells us that when the blind follow the blind, they both fall in the ditch. When I see the images, the silhouettes, even the faces of these young people, 
these young men and women that are committing such egregious acts, a battle cry begins to stir in my spirit. Oh, it's not a battle cry of judgment. No. Oh, it's not a battle cry of condemnation. No. It is the battle cry that reaches all the way back into the Gospel of John. A battle cry that shocks me to the very core of my heart as Jesus' words squelch the attempted invasion of hatred and condemnation for these shadowy figures that are caught up in deception and rebellion. That's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, because if I keep staring at them, my heart begins to grow very, very cold toward them. But the Holy Spirit has enough sense to say, let me draw your heart back to the scriptures that you've known from a child. And I don't know, friends, if there's any scripture that sounds more like a battle cry than John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Come on. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a battle cry for Father, for God, for Daddy, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. But we often leave off verse 17. We leave it off. You see it there on the screen. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through His Son the whole world would be saved. See, we forget that one. That's a battle cry all by itself. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And you can do it openly if you'd like. But according to John 3.16, all lives matter. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world. That's every life. That's every tribe, every tongue, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman. I don't care who you are. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. The same Son that would hang on a cross and would release the renowned battle cry of it is finished. I'm talking about the same son that would heal our emotional wounds and straighten out our crippled walk. That son would have his own battle cry from the cross. Friends, when I behold the images of violence on television, a tug of war breaks out on the inside of me. A tug of war breaks out in my heart. You know what it breaks out between? One end of the rope is my spirit and the other end is my flesh. You see, my flesh wants to throw all of these lawless rebels under the bus. And if you'll be honest, yours does too. Come on now. But my spirit said, no, how about if we just nail them to Christ's cross? That's the spirit, man. Flesh says they're not worth it. Friends, let me draw your attention back to John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, all lives matter, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him, through him the whole world would be saved. You see his heart? 
His heart is for all mankind. His heart is for all humanity. The whole world needs to know this kind of love. This John 3.16 love. The whole world needs to know this kind of light. God's love. God's light. The whole world needs to be saved. Amen? It does. Through those scriptures, John 3.16 and 17, my spirit, my soul, and my body, that's all of me, respond in a unified manner so as to shine the light of Christ into the chaos and the gross darkness. Our only hope out of darkness is the light. Would you agree with that? Our only hope out of the darkness is the light. The late Martin Luther King Jr. said these words. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Darkness has no power over darkness. Hate has no power over hate. Only love can drive out darkness. Only love can drive out hate. For too long, the church has been taught to run from the darkness rather than run to the darkness. They use scriptures like, well, brother, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, friends. That has nothing to do with shining our light into the darkness. I heard that from a child. That's why we couldn't go to the theater and watch Bambi, because they would use that scripture. Come out from among them and be ye separate, brother. Touch no unclean thing. Well, I want to remind you that Jesus came and he had contact with crippled people, emotionally wounded people. But apart from His grace, apart from His love, apart from His light, apart from His compassion, they would have remained in darkness. I do not run from the darkness. I run to it. And I shine my light in the darkness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6-10, through 10, we find these words. For God who said, look at that, let light shine out of darkness. You know, in order to let light shine out of darkness, it has to have shined into the darkness first. Would you agree with that? You can't give away something you don't have. He said, let light shine out of the darkness. And he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Look at those words. In the face of Christ. You can't get light anywhere else. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Oh, thank you, Father. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. I thank you for that, for saying that, that you can't just think that this is my light. This is my light, friends. This is His light. This is His light. Now it goes on, and it begins to paint a picture of what the world can seem like even now. It says, we are hard-pressed on every side. That means you've got COVID-19 one way, and you've got chaos 20 another way. We're hard-pressed! On both sides. But he says, but not crushed. 
Hard-pressed, but not crushed. Perplexed. CNN will say one thing. Fox News will say something totally different. It's kind of perplexing. Who's right here? What's going on? We're perplexed. But it says, but not in despair. Why? Because grace and truth doesn't come from either of these networks. Grace and truth comes from the Scriptures. And then it says we're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, you've heard the Apostle Paul talk about being hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. COVID and chaos on steroids, yet his default is we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in your body. So let me ask you a question. Is there some sort of greater purpose in all of this chaos? Because I know if we had the opportunity, all the chaos that's going on, we'd end it that fast. If we could just all take a vote, majority won, we'd end it that fast. But what if the Lord said there's a greater purpose in all this chaos? Would you be patient? Would you be willing to wait? So there's the question. Is there a greater purpose in all this chaos? Well, let's stay in context. I'm in 2 Corinthians. I just read chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Let's bump up to verse 15, verses 15 through 18. Again, we're in context. He's dealt with all these issues. He said, all of this is for your benefit. Look at those words. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now, God didn't cause any of this stuff to happen. He didn't orchestrate any of this. He's the author of life, not the author of division and death. But he's telling you in the midst of what man is doing, in the midst of what is happening in your world, he says very plainly there that I have a deeper and greater plan so that the grace of God may reach more and more people and that we may overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, he says, we do not lose heart. Another way to say it is we are not silenced by the darkness. See, when you lose heart, you quit talking. You show me a person that has nothing to say, I'm going to show you a person that's lost heart. They get frustrated. They walk away, whether it's a marriage or whether it's your legal institution, whatever it may be, they lose heart. And they lose their voice, silenced by the darkness. It says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Look at these words. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, and we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm telling you, you may have to have a conversation with yourself. I told you, I had my fill this past week. It pulled me in like a spider web, and then like I just, I just couldn't get enough. I wanted to know what's going on in my world. I want to know how to pray for it. I get it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at some point in time, I thought, I'm, not just, I'm just not doing my heart any favors here. And so I'm going to fix my eyes on what I can't see, which is Christ. I'm going to fix my eyes on what I can't see, which is His love and His grace. I see the manifestations of it, yes, but it itself, I can't see it. Friends, don't fix your eyes on rioting. If you do, 
then your flesh will come to despise the rioters. But fix your eyes on the righteousness of God in Christ. Fix your eyes on the promises that keep us from being abandoned and struck down. Keep your eyes on those promises. I was telling Valerie on the way here today, I said one of the things I did see as a headline, and this really blessed my heart, in Louisville, Kentucky yesterday, there was an officer that got caught into a section of the city by himself, and the rioters were upon him. It was probably a death sentence for him. And I mean, if you looked at him, he looked like a ninja turtle in all of his gear, man. And he had muscles like Popeye. But you are no match for all these people. But do you know what happened? Five or six of those brothers got around him and they locked their arms and faced the mob and said no. And it blessed my heart. I mean, those guys were literally saying, you're going to have to come through us. And the man standing behind us, I know he's got a gun. You're going to have to come to us. But you know what? You don't see that every day in the news. But what you do is you just see destruction and desecration. And it gets hard on the heart after a while. I get it. Fix your eyes on the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, I want to show you where all this destruction and this devastation ultimately have its root system in. I mean, it's pretty plain. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. There's your root system. According to that verse, it is Satan and his demonic horde that have had their knee on the throat of humanity since the Garden of Eden, and they are the ones that are ultimately responsible for this dark world and all forms of evil. We don't have to be concerned about the darkness overtaking us, about the darkness overtaking the light, because light always wins over darkness. The psalmist wrote, even in darkness, Light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. That's you, that's me, that's us, that's we. Light dawns for the upright. To find the origin of darkness, we have to go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, right out of the gate. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 say these words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. It literally means he fluttered upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Friends, let me tell you something. The light that God divided from darkness has nothing to do with the skin tones of humanity. It has everything to do with day and night. Man, on the other hand, is still attempting to divide light skin from dark skin, but Jesus loves all the children of the world. Do you remember that? Red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. 
Verse 2 in those scriptures right there communicates a graphic picture. When it says that the earth was without form and void, I underline that, it translates in the Hebrew as this. Now you'll have to just go home and get out your own concordance because you'll find I'm exactly right because that's where I got it from. I just said, what do these words mean? Without form and void. In Hebrew, it literally reads this way, the earth was worthless and empty. You say, God made the earth and it's worthless and empty? Yeah, because it has not come into fruition for that which he created it to do. So at this point, and there's no light, it is worthless and it is empty. That's what those words mean. Friends, can you imagine how many millions of our children in the United States alone are growing up in homes without a father, homes without the scriptures, and homes without faith in Christ. That leaves them feeling worthless and empty. No light. Worthless and empty, no light. I absolutely do not condone the unrest and the violence that's taking place in our streets. But at the same time, I do understand that the majority of these young men and women find some sort of sense of value, some sort of sense of fulfillment, something they never got from home. So they turned to the street and they discovered a family that would accept them, a family that would embrace them, a family that would put their arms around, a family that they could somewhat unify with, even though it's darkness. That's where it comes out of. However, they are oblivious to the truth that darkness cannot remove darkness. In order for God to take away the worthless and emptiness of the earth, he had to speak into the darkness with the words, let there be light. What was the end result? The light was divided from the darkness and God saw the light and he said, that is good. I'm not silenced by the darkness. The darkness is silenced by the light. In the book of Job, we meet a man whose life and liberty and pursuit of happiness has been flipped on its head. Who did this to Job? Was it the Sabaeans? Was it the Chaldeans? Friends, it tells you in the first few chapters it was Satan. Remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. In the midst of unbearable physical and emotional suffering through the boils on Job's body and through the loss of his ten children, Job had questions for God. In the aftermath of economic ruin, Job had questions for God. Through the stinging words of his best friends, Job had questions for God. Through the character assassination from his own wife, Job had questions for God. And there's this great dialogue that begins all the way through Job. It will almost wear you out, friends. It's like watching news 
nonstop for 42 days. It just will wear you out. And it's not until we see the end of it where we see God just totally restore this man that's lost everything he's got. And friends, that's where our hope needs to be is that God is a God of restoration. He knows what he's doing in the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this unrest. He knows what he's doing. You see, Job had only known the good life. Job had only known life from the big house. Job had never experienced looting. Job had never experienced death. Job had never experienced destruction. But within 48 hours, his world would be turned upside down, inside, outside, downside, upside. The scriptures tell us that Job had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. And it says he had a large number of servants. And in a moment, he was ravaged like the shelves at an auto zone or a target. Gone that fast. Let me ask you the question again. Who is responsible for this? Who's responsible for this destruction? Who's responsible for this darkness? It is Satan the one that cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy, the one that strips the fathers out of the homes, the one that rocks the cradle as dust settles on the Holy Scriptures, the one that takes away your vitamin C and your vitamin D so that you are left with wounds that never heal and a walk that is always crippled. Satan is the one that leaves you with a dependency on a vaccine and a robust economy rather than a dependency on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, my dependency is on Christ. Nothing else matters. Christ is my dependency. If he can't get me through it, nobody can get me through it. Yet the world's putting all their trust in so many other external situations and resources. No, it's Christ alone. Cornerstone. The Bible tells us, actually, if you read that book of Job, it will tell you that Job suffered for many months. I think it's around chapter 7. It talks about for many months he suffered. Some people say maybe he suffered for as long as a year. And during that time, he had many discussions with God, usually one way, because God didn't start talking to him until the later part. I think it was around chapter 38. God started talking back to him. So he was doing an awful lot of wearing himself out, complaining, talking to God. But in a quest to understand what had just happened, because he had nothing that he could pin this to. He didn't know about no devil. I mean, he can't make sense of any of this. And in this quest to understand what just happened, Job made statements. Job asked God questions. And through chapter 24, I want you to see how history has repeated itself. Job Chapter 24, verses 1 through 17. He says, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? I think you might have been asking that question too. When we see all the chaos going on in the world. God, why don't you just judge this and get it over with? Why haven't you set some sort of time for this? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Why do I have to put it on my calendar? Why isn't it on your calendar? He's judging God's heart too at the same time. There are those who move boundary stones. Friends, I've been watching boundary stones get moved all week long. Yellow tape it's called and you just keep crossing it to a new boundary. 
He said, there are those that move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hidings. In other words, no lives matter. See, that's what happens when you can't value your life, you won't value somebody else's. You get to the point where you're trying to say, this particular group of lives matters. No, if you don't value your life, you don't value nobody's life. That's why the Bible says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you hate yourself, you'll hate your neighbor. You cannot give away what you don't have. Here's Job continuing. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by the mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. Now look at these next words, friends. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. Can you see the grace deficiency? Can you see the no fathers? It starts off by saying the fatherless child. This is what the fatherless child can do, especially when there's no God in the home, especially when there's no scriptures in the home, especially when there's no grace and no love, unconditional love poured into their heart from a child. No fathers, no scriptures, no grace. Look at the next words, though. These are the words that at first bugged me when I saw them. But even Job writes, but God charges no one with wrongdoing. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up, kills the poor and needy, and in the night steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me. Look at these words. And he keeps his face concealed. Friends, I'm telling you, history has repeated itself. In the dark, thieves break into houses. But by day, they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, midnight is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. Peaceful, mixing with the profane. Becoming one, becoming friends. Darkness, becoming friends with more darkness, gross darkness. Friends. The battle that is going on is not about racism. It's a battle between darkness and light, ungodliness and righteousness. Job sat in agony and darkness and emotional numbness for many months. Scurvy and rickets would have been a picnic compared to what he had to endure. But Job continued to trust in God, and in the end, as I said before, all was restored, all was made beautiful, beautiful children back, awesome. 
Would you like to know what the words were that Job penned in the midst of his own pandemic and in the midst of his own chaos? You see, Job took disease, destruction, and death, and he mixed them all into one pot, and he called them darkness. That's what he did. And in Job chapter 23 and verse 17, we see these words from Job. Yet I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Friends, those are the words from Job's mouth. Thousands of years later, speaking into our hearts. What is Job saying? He's saying, look, I understand what disease is. Boils have riddled my body. I mean, I, I can't find any sleep. I can't get any rest. I'm in agony. My 10 children, seven boys and three girls were killed in one day, all gone. I've got a wife who's turned her back on me and said, why don't you just curse God and die, Job? I've got all my servants that have been taken away, all my livestock, all my riches, everything gone within 48 hours, friends. Yet he still had to trust in God. Why? That from a child he knew about him. That from a child, however it was, however he was taught, however he come to know God, however God manifested to him at some point in time in his life, he knew there was God. He couldn't look at all this beautiful creation and go, there's no God. That is a heartful, that is a mouthful, that's where we're at right now. I don't want to stand here and just go, well, there's nothing going on in this world. Everything is fine so far. I'm telling you, the Father has a plan to orchestrate our way out of this darkness and to orchestrate that darkness into the light so that our lights will shine into this darkness so that they can see the face of Christ in the midst of this. He's got a plan. So what is our call to action? What is our call to action? Number one, we've got to pray. We've got to pray. Set aside time and don't bark orders at God. I'm not going to tell you how to pray. You know how to pray. Come into agreement with his heart. That it's not his heart that any man should perish. That it is his heart that all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That he's no respecter of persons. That he loves them from the guttermost to the uttermost. Come into agreement with his scriptures. We need to pray. In fact, I don't know as though we have a weapon that's greater than prayer. We must pray. Number two, we've got to let go of the old covenant. Now that's a foreign phrase to a lot of people. But I'm telling you, laws do not stop the lawless any more than darkness drives out darkness or hate drives out hate. Only light and love is what matters. We've got to cut loose of holding on to this old covenant, putting people under an old covenant, telling them you've got to do this to be right with God. That's what caused a generation to walk away from the church in the first place. And the ones that stayed like you and me, man, if we were a remnant, most people have walked away from the church. Number three, we've got to share the gospel of grace. Share the gospel of grace. Grace is the good news of God. The gospel is good news. What is good news? Grace. That he has provided for everything on our behalf. It is finished. In our sharing of the gospel, declare that battle cry. It is finished. Number four, we have to value vote. We have to cast our vote for righteousness. Sometimes that's kind of hard to do because 
It's not the most grand situation on either side, but you have to be led by the Holy Spirit. To listen at the news, they want to defund the police department. That's because the people, elected people in office that could even say, I have the ability to do that. Defund the police department. I said to Valerie in the way here, well, who's going to protect us then? I mean, if, if you think you've got a criminal problem now, defund the police department. California is talking about defunding it by $150 million. That's a lot of officers cut out of the mix. We have to cast our vote. Our votes make a difference. And number five, we have to shine our light into the darkness. What do I mean by that? I'm talking about help someone out of darkness. Be the father that they never had. Be the friend that they never had. Be the big brother that they never had. Shine your light, not only into their heart, but shine your light from the scriptures. We have to shine our light into the darkness. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. In the midst of tumultuous times, we can rest assured that our Father is whispering these words into our hearts. It is well. Peace be still. His heart is to build a city, not tear it down. I believe he too mourns over the needless and useless and senseless and careless loss of lives. In his goodness and in his grace, he has provided a way out of our physical pain, our emotional duress, and our spiritual separation. Oh, not through a vaccine, <laughs> but through a cross. That's how he provided your way out. Because of fatherlessness and godless homes, darkness and fires and battles have become raging infernos inside of our children's hearts. Most of our kids have not discovered the fire extinguisher found in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They've not found that fire extinguisher yet. Most have never heard Jesus' battle cry, it is finished. I'm talking about the battle cry that has delivered us from the slave plantation. The battle cry that forgives those that have mistreated us. The battle cry that delivers us from all deficiencies, heals our inner wounds, and straightens out our crippled walk. The battle cry that expresses solidarity and intimidates the enemy. Because of the Father's great love for us, He is lovingly patient and slow to condemn. The Bible says he's slow to anger, slow to condemn anybody with wrongdoing, including the one who rebels against the light. Friends, he has an appointed time, but now is the time he wants to save them. He doesn't want to extinguish them. He wants to save them. The Father empowers us to be a father to the fatherless. The Father has empowered us to apply first aid in the form of love and light to them that are dying in the city and to the souls of the wounded which cry out for help. Darkness shall not kill our babies. 
Darkness shall not steal our voices. Darkness shall not destroy our government or the will of our people. Darkness shall not snuff out our light. Darkness will not set fire to the confidence we have in Christ. Darkness shall not eclipse our hope for the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Darkness cannot stand in the presence of light. It has to go. It has to flee so that we are left standing as ones with the face of Christ with a battle cry of, I am not silenced by the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daddy, I want to just praise you. I want to just honor your goodness. I'm thanking you that you have called the body of Christ to prayer. You have called us to stand in the gap of those that cannot see their way out of darkness. Daddy, that's the problem. They cannot see. They have not run into the fire extinguisher of Jesus' John 3, 16 love. When he hung on a cross and he died for the whole world. Father, I want to thank you in your heart that all lives matter. And that gives me great hope, Daddy, because the ones that are out there that are rebels to light, you say, son, that light matters too. And Father, the only way for darkness to be overcome is, is for our light to shine into it. So help us to see as we have opportunity to do good, as we have opportunity to cast a light, the light of grace, the light of the gospel, the light of the new covenant. As we have opportunity to do that, let us do good in doing so, Daddy. I thank you, Father. I thank you that we are not people of fear. We are not people that shriek back. We stand firm. We stand knowing who we are in Christ because that from a child, we have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect. Yes, that's right, perfect, just like Christ. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So thank you, Father. We stand as a body today. We stand as believers today declaring that we are children of light and we are not silenced by the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.